Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do you love this show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before, like Latinas talking about dinero. Anchor will help you distribute your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Start today and download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres Rodriguez, and I'm here to help you be poderosa with your dinero. I'm an engineer, a blogger, and an entrepreneur that built a $50,000 side hustle, and I'm obsessed with all things personal finance. On this show, we're going to talk about how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and how to make it grow. Are you ready? Vámonos. Hola, mi gente. Welcome back to another episode of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. This is your host, Janice. And I am super, super excited to host our next guests. So in the same line that we have been using this platform to elevate the voices of Black content creators, today is no exception. We are going to be talking to Julian and Kirsten Saunders of Rich and Regular. Julian and Kirsten are the couple behind the award-winning blog and forthcoming book, Rich and Regular. Their mission is to inspire the African-American community to consider and adopt the FIRE lifestyle as a path to building generational wealth. 
The couple has used frugal living, real estate investing, and their online business to set themselves on a path to achieving financial independence by 2021. Their story has been featured in publications like Forbes, The New York Times, and CBS This Morning. When they're not sharing stories about their experiences with money, they are parents to their son, Beau, traveling the world or searching for their next great meal. Julian, Kirsten, thank you so, so much for being here. First off, it is an honor to have you on the show. We're so excited to talk to you. As soon as you sent us a note, we got super excited. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So for anybody who doesn't know who you guys are and what you do, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, My name is Julian. Uh, My better half is Kirsten. We've been married uh, since 2015. Um, We are content creators. We're a lot of things right now. We're content creators, um, soon to be published authors, entrepreneurs, former real estate investors, parents uh, of a three-year-old. And and well on our way uh, to being financially independent. We share our story um, through our blog, through social media, and pretty much any medium we can get our hands on um, at richandregular.com. Awesome. So I actually found that about you guys because I saw a presentation that Kirsten did for the Financial Feminist Summit that Bravely Go hosted. Yeah. And I was like, I was shook, to be honest, like watching your presentation because for me, it was the first time that I heard financial independence framed in a way that it was like a social justice issue. Like it's our way to fight back against oppression. Mm -hmm. And like, it made so much sense. It clicked to me in a way that, you know, hearing all these white people talking about financial independence, it just did not click. So that's why I wanted to have you guys on the show because I'm like, okay, they are talking about why I'm doing this. I didn't even know why I was doing it, but now with your guidance and just with that, that lens that you've provided, like I get why you're doing it. So I want to get into how you guys are pursuing financial independence and all that. But before we get into that, why don't we talk a little bit about your backgrounds? Um, Julian, if you want to start and just kind of give us your career, career trajectory and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I think mine is pretty simple. Um, I fell in love with food and cooking at a young age. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do up until uh, really my senior year in high school. Uh, I ended up taking a home economics class, uh, learned how to cook, and literally a few weeks after that, I said, you know what, I wanted to be a chef. And I had a you know a little bit of an inkling leading up to that, but um, I spent uh, really from the age of 18 all the way up to... 37 uh, in the hospitality industry. And so I started out as a chef cooking professionally in restaurants and hotels. Um, I then transitioned from uh, the kitchen into the front of the house into service and uh, pretty much every job in a restaurant you can think of I have done. Um, But after about 10 years of that, um, I stopped that and then moved into a corporate role uh, in working for a hotel franchisor where I met Kirsten in 2012, and the rest has been history, but I'll let her tell her experience as well. Okay. Yeah, so um, I have always had an entrepreneurial side to me because I've always loved having my own money. Like, you know how little kids will connect on one thing? Like, some little kids always like having 
a blanket or you know a, a pacifier. My thing was money. Like I always <laughs> loved having my own. And so I started my first business when I was 13. I was making like t-shirts with iron-on transfer paper. And then I became a babysitter and then a pet sitter and a number of things. And I really thought I was going to be an entrepreneur or a writer um, right before I uh, started high school. Mm-hmm. But then I started high school and I couldn't find any models of entrepreneurs or writers that looked like me or had the life that I wanted. So I went on the, I guess, normal, using air quotes, track to college and started my career off in retail. I worked for Target uh, for almost five years right after college. My degree is in um, a corner of the sociology department that focuses on management and like organizational design. So managing large Mm -hmm. teams of people was like my jam. And I worked in retail. Um, When I was done working on weekends and holidays and nights for all of those in like the service and retail industry, you know how that's a grind. Mm -hmm. I switched to a more corporate role um, that was still heavily involved with people, um, but in the travel and hospitality space. And that's where I met Julian in 2012 and finished out my traditional career 11 years later uh, when I left this past February. Wow. Okay. So I love the fact, Julian, that you were a foodie. I'm a food blogger. So as soon as I saw that you're in the, the you were in the food industry, I was like, I now I understand why y'all are cooking shrimp and grits on your <laughs> show. It made so much sense to me. So I love the fact that you guys are foodies. And yes, uh, Kirsten, I totally understand what you're talking about when it comes to the service industry and the fact that you have legit no life. So (laughs) I'm wondering, (laughs) is that part of the motivation that kind of made you realize like this, I'm just not about this life anymore? Was it just that that constant grind or what was it? No, it actually came much later. So the way I coped with the constant grind was through spending. That was my coping mechanism. And I racked up a ton of debt because I was always getting that little dopamine rush of buying the next thing for my house or a luxury car or making sure I lived in a cool part of town so that when I did get home at 11 o'clock at night, I could stumble into a bar or a restaurant and console with the other people in the, in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was well into, not well into, but like right around 30 years old before I started to realize like, oh, I can't just out earn this thing forever. I need to find healthier ways to to manage my emotions. And that was when I met Julian um, and he really just called, <laughs> put it out, called me out um, around the pattern that I had in my life at the time. Oh, interesting. Okay. So we're going to dive into all of that. So before we touch on that, I would just love to know what your guys's money story is. I feel like we all have a money story, kind of how we dealt with it, um, how we saw our parents deal with it. That shapes a lot of how we move with it as we become adults. So uh, Kirsten, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, you know talk us through that process for you? And then Julian, you can go ahead and tell us your money story as well. Yeah. My money story is one of never ending optimism, uh, as Julian calls it, toxic positivity. (laughs) I just just always assumed that my career path was a straight line and that it was always going to be pointing up. And so I spent assuming that I would always or eventually out earn it. I would spend money I didn't have thinking that, well, in five years, I'll, I'll be able to afford this or 
I'll be able to pay for it by getting a promotion. Or it was just like this constant um, seeing, or it was the constant like giving the world, the system, the benefit of the doubt that wasn't uh-huh. serving me. It was leading to really bad financial choices up until recently. Mm-hmm. How about you, Julian? My money story is a story of 1980s Brooklyn crack and hip hop. <laughs> like that's <laughs> literally the environment that I grew up in. Um, obviously, I didn't know it would be considered the crack era at the time, but looking back, um, I said, I mean, it was all around us, and so, but it was normal because we didn't really have anything to compare it to. Uh, money was always scarce. It was, you know, I always tell people money was was literally like a leprechaun. Like it was just something that you, uh, it was almost like a mythical creature. Like no one had it. You heard about it. You might see it, you know, in Manhattan, but, uh, or glimpses of it in Manhattan, but it wasn't something that um, anyone around me had uh, as a child. Um, I moved from New York to Atlanta right around the Olympics or around 96. Um, and that was really just a different, I guess, more softer suburban um, continuation of poverty, really. Um, we mm-hmm. weren't, it wasn't as bad as New York, but we certainly just did not really have a lot. Every dollar was basically accounted for. Um, and so for me, you know, I grew up in a Caribbean household. Uh, the objective was always to get a good education, to work hard and get up and do it all over again. And that was essentially. Uh, the best way to get out of the situation that we were in. Um, And so it wasn't until really like my 30s where I started to connect some dots and say, okay, I'm really tired. (laughs) Like after working as long and as often as I have and as much as I pride myself on my ability to do that, I just don't really feel like this is sustainable. And so that's when I started to look for smarter ways to earn money and to build wealth than just the constant exchange of time. Yeah. Yeah, your story definitely resonates with me. And, and uh, Kirsten, I think like when I think of me and my husband, it's a very similar story to you and Julian, where I grew up in, I would say more of a like a middle class household. You know, my parents, my dad went to the Navy, got his education, you would say through there. My mom is a secretary. And, you know, they kind of just they came from Puerto Rico in the 1980s with $200 in their pocket and kind of figured it out as they as they went along. And um, my husband's family, again, immigrants, they came from Colombia and Puerto Rico, respectively. And just, they they taught us, right, the American dream, go to school, get an education, it'll pay off. But we still found ourselves, even as adults, just not really knowing what to do with money. Like, mm-hmm. we got the lesson about, okay, yeah, you should save some of it. But we also got the lesson, like, try to work for the same employer for 40 plus years, because that's what being smart looks like. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I'm wondering, did you guys get that same message? Like, don't do crazy things, like be responsible. Entrepreneurship is not for you. It's for other people. Did you hear those messages at all? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I, <laughs> as much as my dad encouraged entrepreneurship at, for his, for his child, when I was talking about making that my career and, skipping college and starting a business, it was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> like, yeah, you gotta go to school. Um, and and it, it, was, it was a little bit jolting because I felt like I had already discovered the thing that people go to school for. You go to school mm-hmm. to get a good job and I had already figured out how to 
make money without that. And I felt like I had found the cheat code. And uh, it's interesting because I was talking about this with someone else a few weeks ago, like now that I've quit and have, you know, started entrepreneurship full time, it's like returning back to that mindset that I had when I was young. And it's really invigorating. It's really nice to, to, to be back there and to yeah. feel optimistic about money again, because I'm in control of it. Mm-hmm. That's great. How did you first become interested or involved with investing in financial independence? I want to understand where that came from. So you said you were kind of in your, both in your thirties before you figured out, like there has to be a better way who figured it out first. And then who brought who along? Well, I figured it out (laughs) years before I met Kirsten. Um, Okay. So it was when I was in grad school. um, And really, you know, it was like 2007, 2008. And, you know, basically in between studying or doing papers or whatever I was doing during those those years. And I just needed a break from it all. Like I would just look on the Internet and I just found these things. And I started just connecting dots and said, you know what? I'm about to enter corporate America and that's cool, but I'm not doing this forever. Cause like, I just mm. knew it wasn't for me. Um, I, I, and again, that was also from the counsel that I got, which, you know, going back to the lessons that we got from my parents, it was like, don't even think about starting a business and also <laughs> corporate America sucks, but you have to do it anyway. So it was like, all right, well, I feel stuck. Um, yeah. so I, I knew that it wasn't an environment for me, um, or uh, certainly wasn't an environment that was designed for me but I needed to figure out some other things. And so for me, it started with real estate investing. I was like, all right, well, how do people build wealth? And that led me to real estate investing. Um, and I explored that and we eventually did become real estate investors. Um, but real estate is what introduced me to the fire movement and the fire movement is what introduced me to other forms of digital entrepreneurship, sort of where we are today. And so I found, I would say the beginning of um, what I would just say that the, the the origin of like taking full control of your financial destiny right around 2007, 2008, which was mm-hmm. also right around the time of the economic downturn. And I said, you know what, if ever there was a time to start investing in real estate, it was now. Because if there's one thing I knew for sure is that the market and the economic cycle, that things work in cycles. And so if I was going to get in, like 2008 was arguably the last great equalizer that we had. And so mm. um, that was when I really started digging in uh, because I knew that, you know, even if I failed at it, I would be failing at it at probably one of the lowest costs <laughs> that I could probably get. It. Right. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. OK, so how about you, Kirsten? I, I feel like you probably weren't into the idea in the beginning. So what were your initial thoughts like when Julian was like, hey, what do you think about a financial independence? Yeah, the first time I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> Because very similar to when I first learned about entrepreneurship, when I looked at the FIRE movement, I saw really extreme versions of frugality. Now, I would later learn that there are there's a spectrum and that there are lots of people and those people have their reasons for saving the way that they do. But like it was it was jarring to see people, you know, counting beans <laughs> to keep their meals under a dollar 25 and not using toilet paper and opting for like a family cloth which is really environmentally conscious but not something that I was open to doing yeah you no. know at the time and it was just really jarring that so much of the conversation was around how to lower expenses versus what freedom gives you what financial freedom grants you what do you gain 
And it was really um, probably six or seven months after he introduced it to me that we started having that conversation of like, all right, what do we get if if we don't have work in the way? What does our life look like? Like, what does our energy feel like? What is our family? What can our family accomplish if you don't have this thing that is sucking up 40, 50, maybe even 60 or 70 hours of your week? And that's when I started to get excited. And that's when I bought in. Got it. Okay. So what conclusions did you guys make based on analyzing what you had to gain by taking this different path versus continuing on the same trajectory? In terms of financial conclusions? Yeah. Like what, what did you conclude you would benefit from like in your lives, your personal lives, your lives as parents? Like what, how did you sell yourself on the benefits? What did you come to a realization of? I think we realized how often we were wearing a mask and how much we weren't actually talking about the things that make us happy because we didn't have time to really think about it. Mm. And so for us, it was really thinking about, and this really came up on our honeymoon. So we took a two week honeymoon in South Africa and it was the first time that we had truly unplugged. At that time, uh, Trump had just like announced that he was running for the presidency. And mm-hmm. so the media had just started like this, you know, cycle of, yeah, <laughs> of, of hatred and, and bigotry. And it was very loud and new. And so we went to South Africa and it was quiet over there. Like people would mention it like, ah, ha, ha, what's going on with American politics? But like it wasn't so central to our day mm-hmm. and to our experience. And when it was when we had that quiet time away from work, away from the media, away from just overt racism, we started to realize like, oh my gosh, I love art. <laughs> Look how beautiful the ocean is. Mm. I love, you know, talking about the future and imagining a future that is one that I have a greater sense of control. And I think just the benefit of, of finding our imagination again and not having it be drowned out by different voices that aren't ours was, was the biggest one. Yeah. That's, that's really powerful. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Amanda Seals and I love that she talks about that, you know, society doesn't really give people of color, like a lot of opportunity to be joyful and to just like, cause you're always just stressed out about some shit that's going to go down. Right. It's like, we're always in like panic mode or, or like just praying for the, the best and, and expecting the worst. And I think you know, what you said resonated a lot with me because I feel like we are so programmed to be always hustling, always on the go, always preparing for something to drop that we don't give ourselves enough chances to really imagine like what the possibilities of life actually are and can be. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's definitely been my experience as someone who is fairly carefree and loves to laugh and likes things when they're easy. <laughs> it's always mm-hmm. been something that the world, especially, you know, my parents and and the black people who love me have tried to cure me of. They want me to be mm. have a little more chip on my shoulder, be a little more pessimistic. And I needed that, like for sure. Obviously <laughs> in the financial space that has helped me a lot to realize like whatever fantasy I was believing in isn't one mm-hmm. that was serving me. But at the same time, I also want to live a life that isn't so dark. You know, I want to be able to to laugh and to enjoy and walk through life like some of our white counterparts do. Yeah. 
Yeah. So one of the things I remember you talking about too during your um, presentation for the Financial Feminist Summit was that you came to a realization that like your chances of moving up in the corporate world just based on the data were not great. And so like, what the hell was the point of continuing this endless grind with no guarantee of, of success when you could just take things into your own hands and decide that maybe I'm just going to opt out of this? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it was a really sobering moment when I, when I actually sat there and looked at the data because mm -hmm. at the time, um, Sheryl Sandberg had just come out with the whole like lean in movement and women were louder about uh, the patriarchy and, and, you know, just all of the progress that we were making as, as women. But mm -hmm. when I really looked at the data, I realized what that meant was white women. <laughs> That's not mm. the case for black and brown women. We were not as excelling at the same uh, pace as our counterparts. And I have always known that some progress exceeds our lifetime. Like that's something that was also really ingrained in me from my parents, but I never thought it would be equality from, from a, from a, Lord, I never thought it would be um, like feminist equality, like mm -hmm. equality. And yeah. so realizing that even that message left so many of us behind, it was like, okay, well, I can't wait. Like this is moving way too slow for me. I hear you. I am surrounded by incompetent white males that are doing jobs they are just not qualified for. And it is so frustrating. It and is. oh my gosh. So <laughs> I feel your pain and I understand why you're doing what you're doing. And it's literally the exact same reason why I'm doing it too. Cause ain't nobody got time for this. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, especially when, and I don't mean to rant, but especially when you see progress in other areas of society happening really fast. Like when you see yeah. stuff like virtual reality and like rockets going to Mars and cars that run off batteries, it's like, okay, wait a minute now. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't be this freaking difficult. Like we're talking about pay equality. We're talking about uh, a diverse board, a diverse leadership, you know, uh, a leadership team. Like this shouldn't be hard doesn't even require science this just requires a choice and yeah the fact that so many people weren't making that choice started to piss me off mm. well i i'm with you girlfriend for real <laughs> 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 so i want to get into some of the myths and limiting beliefs that people of color have about investing because you know one of the reasons why i started my podcast and why i'm so grateful to have found people like you and the debt-free community in general is just, you know, this is not something that we talk about. Like my parents, it's, it's kind of sad, but a couple of weeks ago, like I asked them, you know, how much do you guys have in your retirement accounts? Like, what are you invested in? And they're just looking at me like, what, like, what are you saying? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. My mom's like, I don't know. The, the, the guy who works with the union for the schools came in and he like set, set up my account. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that's the extent of it, right? So what are what do you think are, are some of the reasons behind like why people of color just don't invest? That's such a simple and profound, but like really difficult question. Um mm. because there isn't no there there isn't any one version of the story. Um yeah. for some people it's it's a matter of illiteracy. For others, it's I think it's a matter of uh environment. Um, but I think 
I think if we just, if we were to just sort of roll it all up under like one sort of culture, I think, I think it's because it hasn't, as simple as it sounds is that like the concept fully hasn't been um, introduced to our community yet. Like there, it, it's not something that we see and therefore isn't something that we can relate to. And so stories of wealth are white stories. Or mm. even when we talk about stories about um, wealth within uh, black and brown communities, they're really extreme versions of those stories. These aren't people that we can identify with, right? And so when we yeah. talk about wealth, it's really like, a, you know, we're talking about people that are like celebrities or like global, you know, phenomenons, the best in class of what they do, like just outliers that mm-hmm. aren't regular examples. And this is at the heart of our message where it's like, we need more regular examples. As soon as people realize that being rich is something that can be attained by regular people, not people that live in LA and that live in New York or just a handful of people, but people that live wherever you are, as soon as we can make that normal, then I think everyday people will realize that, hey, I can do that too. Um, They'll be a little bit more willing to learn. And that's part of the reason why we don't focus nearly as much on the how-to, because before we focus on the how-to, we have to help people understand why it's important, Mm. like why they should even consider doing any of these things. And so, um, yeah, it's, there's no one thing. I think it's, it's just a matter of it not being reflected to them every single day. And I think the more you see things and hear things every day, the more normal it becomes and the more willing you will be to try those things. But so long as it's all, so long as it's a story that's being told outside of our window or outside of our worldview, like we'll never be able to fully wrap our heads around it. Yeah. I think there's also something to people tend to think they tend to couple investing and retiring. And Mm. so the reason for investing is so that you can retire. And we need more people talking about living off of their investments as a form of a lifestyle. It's not something that you do so that you can live off of it when you're 70. That's one option. Um, And to Julian's point, one, we haven't really seen a ton of examples around to be completely honest, a lot of our parents and grandparents didn't expect to live that long. Like the life mm. expectancy of black and brown people wasn't very high for a while. So this is new for them. And then right. they didn't have a model of like parents who retired based on savings. At the time, corporations and government would take care of you through pensions and through rewarding your lifetime employment. That doesn't exist anymore. And so now it's getting the message out there that like, if you want a, a retirement, if you want a safety net, you have to build it. It's, your government ain't going to give it to you and neither is your company. And so just normalizing the idea of investing early and investing in a way that you can actually live off of that and not have to go into a nine to five every day is a fairly new message. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. I mean, you know, the, the path to wealth from my family was like, go play the lottery. And it mm-hmm. still is I yeah. think, to this point, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just uh, an extreme one way or the other. And I, I definitely agree with you that there's just not enough emphasis placed on the, the power of investing to really become a source of income outside of retirement. Yeah, that, that's a really great point. All right. So I know there's been a lot of discussions, especially as of late, about the racial inequalities in this country, which, you know, 
welcome to 2020. I mean, like, I don't know who didn't know this existed, but if you're you're just becoming aware, welcome to the party. Right. Um, thank you for being here. Hope you stick around. <laughs> um, so, you know, and along those lines, there's been a lot of discussions about not only the wealth gap, which is traditionally talked about between men and women, but there's also the racial aspect of it. And so for people of color, like, why should we care about building wealth from that standpoint? Like, what do we have to benefit from by kind of closing that that wealth gap that exists uh, between blacks, whites, brown people, all people? Yeah, so I think especially in a um, in a political uh, environment like this, I think it's really, really at least it's clear to me <laughs> why wealth is so important. I mean, wealth is what shapes policy, it shapes communities, it shapes um, health standards for families and communities. Um, it, it, it's, it, it impacts every aspect of your life. And so what we're realizing now is, uh, and, you know, I don't know where the breaking point is, but you could argue that I've, I've always believed that whenever you started to see uh, uprisings and violence and riots, that's a pretty good indicator that whatever number you're at, whatever that multiple is, that's you're probably reaching a threshold where people are saying, you know what, what's the point? Why should I even bother to continue to be civil or participate in this system that does not give a shit about me, that does not care about my legacy, does not care about my needs? Um, no matter what I do, I can't win, right? That's what happens when you back people or even an animal. You know, I, I remember this from being a kid. You back a dog into a corner, you'll see a very different version of that dog. Mm -hmm. and I think that's what we're seeing right now with a lot of these communities and people who have just felt like they've just been completely taken advantage of and that there's nothing that they can do to win. There's no safety net. There's no program. Uh, employers don't care about them. Um, and so, you know, that's part of the reason, again, why we are focusing on the why. Helping people say, OK, I get it. You're angry about social justice and criminal uh, uh criminal justice and law enforcement, you're angry about those things, but I want you to connect the dots between that and wealth building, because that is also a pathway that you can that you can take um, to drive change. A few months ago, actually, at the beginning of this year, we spoke to some students at Auburn University, and um, it was about helping them do just that, connect the dots between financial independence and social activism. And we helped them understand that by really reading a story um, or actually a letter written by Dr. King. And mm -hmm. he started out this story, he was writing it in jail and he was writing the letter saying, I planned on staying in jail for the full 21 days after doing this peaceful protest, but we didn't get a chance to because on day three, we were bailed out by an anonymous um, donor. And mm -hmm. the question I asked was, well, who was that person? Like who? Yeah cut that check or who were those people that did that time and time again to make sure that he could get out and that was the message that i said to them i was like no so you may not be out there on the front lines you may not be out there protesting losing your voice that's fine but there are other versions of fighting the good fight and so for those people who are engineers who are scientists who are entrepreneurs who have money they can use that money for good and don't let people who are on the front lines shame you into saying that you cutting a check or sitting back, you know, and, and, and funding things is not as relevant or as powerful. Like that's just bullshit. 
And so yeah. what we're trying to do is to encourage those people who, especially our generation, the best and the brightest, the highest educated, we have the highest net worth, the highest rates, even though it's still low, of home ownership that, hey, you do have power and you are empowered to drive social change using money. Mm-hmm. I love that message. It's so important because so many people, like you said, they just like, if you're not out there, you know, with the signs, like you're not supporting or like donating money is a cop out. Right. But let's be honest, money shapes politics in this country. You have to be a millionaire to even run to for president. So why are we going to sit here and, and try and act like money doesn't literally dictate every single policy? I mean, there's people that literally get paid to be lobbyists on behalf of corporations to create laws that oppress. Uh, so yeah. let's not let's not act like money doesn't have everything to do with what we see today all around us. Money solves a lot of problems. If you've ever met a really powerful uh, politician who just hasn't gotten their name out there, it's because they don't have enough money, you know. Absolutely. Or if you've met a dope entrepreneur or person that you know uh, is probably one of the best that you've ever seen at doing what they do. But you're wondering why they haven't blown up yet is because they don't have enough money to help spread that message yet. Right. And so this is where we as entrepreneurs and as wealth builders and people who do have the money can say, hey, I know that if I were to help fund that person's business, not only would they grow their business, but they would spread that message. And that money would help fund most likely other minority entrepreneurs, which literally funds families and yeah, community mm-hmm. and, and all kinds of things. And so like there's incredible incredible things that can be done with money. And so yeah. it's really trying to culturally destigmatize exactly. um, um, money or, or stop making you know wealth this villain. It's a matter of saying, hey, now wealth can be an asset. Like what you do with it, you know, is what can really make it a powerful thing. And so we're really hoping to keep, uh, to keep um, shouting that from the highest mountaintops and hopefully more people can hear us. Yeah. Yes. It's such an important point because I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. They assign a virtue or a value to that fact that money does have that leverage in our society and they stop pursuing it. But the reality is that surviving capitalism is participating in it to an extent. And Mm. then from there, you can decide if you want to dismantle it, if you want to fund change or if you want to to reform it. But you you are participating in it in some extent. It's just a matter of which one, right? You are either working or you are living in an area that is being heavily gentrified and being pushed out or you're participating it on one end or the other. And what we're saying is get on the side that's winning right now. And then once you're there, you can decide whether or not you want to support dismantling it or whatever choice you have for your family. If you just want to leave and go somewhere completely different where socialism is, socialism is, is the, the ruling economy, it's up to mm-hmm. you. But surviving is, is participating. Don't opt out. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. One of the things that I think a lot of people of color, especially immigrant families um, and first gen kids, like they also have this sense of I need to not only plan for my financial future and security, but also for my parents or my extended family. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on like how we can factor that into our financial independence plans, because I think it does kind of change what our objectives are in a way. That is the single 
so that was the original tension that we identified that made us want to start our blog because mm. not enough people are talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, specifically for the people who are doing well, I remember some of my old coworkers who I knew were making really good money just as well as we were, were doing at the time. But you would wonder why they weren't able to do some of the things. Like you would hear like what your, your white coworker did last weekend or last <laughs> over the summer. <laughs> like, well, why didn't they do those things? And it's because the reality is they're bracing, right? Like many of us are bracing for the day we know that we're going to have to take care of our moms or our, our dads or our, mm-hmm. whoever it is. Or we're not, you know, to your point, we're not just preparing for our own future. We're preparing for three generations. Our, yes. our retirement, our children's retirement, and our parents, um, you know, basically unfunded retirements. Mm-hmm. And so while I may be making good money today, the reality is what I do with that money really matters. And yeah. because like I need to spread that out uh, across three different generations. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a huge, huge issue. And it's one of the reasons why we also tell people to not obsess on that standard rule of thumb and the fire movement around 25 extra expenses because when you're shouldering that kind of burden, you can't quantify what your future expenses are going to be. Like I would literally have to quantify how much daycare is going to be for my four-year-old son and uh, hypertension pills and mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, potentially a surgery that my mother would, would may need to undergo to overcome an ailment that she's dealing with. Like, I can't project what those are going to be. And so for, and, and again, I'm not saying this is why we shouldn't consider financial independence. If anything, I'm saying, okay, this is why we should explore making the most of our income while we have it. And mm-hmm. this is how we connect it to work. And so if you're making, let's just say $75,000 right now, you're doing well, you're doing, you're earning far above the median in the country. Um, you're probably making more money than anyone else in your family. As much as you deserve the right to celebrate right now, if you're also one of those people that are shouldering those burdens across generations, what we're recommending you do is at least explore how can you make the most of that discretionary income right now? How can I invest wisely to make sure that 10 years from now, when you have a teenager and parents in their 70s and 80s, that one, you have the time flexibility to care for them, and two, Mm -hmm. you have the financial resources to solve I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. The issues that, that they may be dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, that's all great advice. Are you one of 76% of Latinos that don't have a will? Okay, I get it. Thinking about estate planning is just not the most fun thing. But we have to make sure that if we're building wealth, that we're protecting it and making sure that our assets are passed down to our loved ones as easily and painlessly as possible. Now, traditional estate planning can be super expensive. I'm talking thousands of dollars. And the whole process can feel super overwhelming. Like, what documents do you need? How do I make sure my pets are taken care of? How do I make sure who is going to take care of my kids if something happens to me? These are all questions that you've been asking yourself. I'm here to offer you a solution. Gentrio is a company that helps you create, store, and share the important documents you need for official estate planning. This includes wills, power of attorneys, and more. On this show, we talk a lot about building generational wealth, and we have to make sure that we're protecting it. So that's why I want you to go to yoquierotineropodcast.com slash Gentrio and find out more today. Life is a journey. Gentrio is with you every step of the way. Find out more by heading to yoquierodineropodcast.com slash G-E-N-T-R-E-O and get started today. Okay, so I want to get into a little bit of the nitty gritty about your personal financial independence journey. So why don't you just go ahead and walk us through kind of where, what you guys started, what was your game plan, your strategy, and how you ended up, uh, Kirsten, like quitting your job a couple months ago. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we started with our primary, well, we started off paying debt. So I had about $30,000 of consumer debt and Julian had some leftover student loans, some tax debt and um, a car note that he needed to cover. And so we started out paying down our debt separately, individually to knock that out. Um, and then we decided to remodel and pay off the mortgage of our primary home. Um, oh, no, before that, you bought your rental, the rental property. Yes. So the first major investment we made as we were paying off debt, and I can't remember the exact lineup of whether we were done paying off the debt or still in the middle, was a, a rental property, an investment property here in Atlanta. Um, mm -hmm. Then we started focusing on paying down our mortgage, and then we started throwing the additional money into the market through low-cost index funds. And so our original plan included real estate. We had one rental property. And then when we, whenever we decided to move from our primary place, we we're going to turn that, convert that into a, a second rental property. Mm -hmm. 
So it was like a mix of traditional investments in the stock market and income generating real estate was our original plan. Were um, you guys just investing in like IRAs and 401ks or did you also invest in brokerage accounts as well at that time? Correct. All of the above. Okay. Including 529s and well, mm-hmm. probably the only, yeah, well, yeah, 529s and like savings emergency accounts. But um, yeah, but the three investment growth um, vehicles would have been 401k, IRA, and uh, a brokerage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. About a year ago or two years, was it a year ago? About a year ago. <laughs> I didn't even finish. Yeah, I don't know what you're <laughs> <laughs> About a year ago, we started. Um, having second thoughts about being real estate investors and started the process of really thinking through whether that was something we wanted to continue to invest in long term. And we Mm -hmm. decided that it wasn't because we had started digital entrepreneurship. And once you earn a dollar on the Internet, (laughs) it reminds you how how passive income can be and how uh, how flexible income can be versus real estate. And so we decided to unload, offload our our properties. Um, we did the first one last year, last October, and the second one earlier this year in February or March. And so now our 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 portfolio consists of mostly our business and traditional index funds and bro- and brokerage accounts. Okay, got it. Yeah, it, it's funny because I think a lot of us have this idea that real estate is one of the only paths to like investing because that's what our parents tell us, right? It's like the American dream is to own a house. And then if you're lucky, you own a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, investing in the stock market, that's for the rich white people. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about that. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think it makes a lot of sense where you guys kind of shifted um, your perspective on, you know, real estate is not a passive investment, despite what many people think. There's a lot of actual sweat and, and, you know, time that goes into maintaining these properties. There's a lot of money involved there. You're dealing with human beings, which mm-hmm. complicates things. So <laughs> it's not for everybody. And so you guys figured out that, you know, when it comes to what you want your lives to look like, you kind of want your income streams to be as truly passive as possible. That's what it sounds like at least. Yeah. And flexible. If there's ever a time where we want to live away from the U.S. and and be expats for a little while, we wanted to make sure that we were comfortable leaving. Mm-hmm. And for us, our real estate investments were within like, you know, five to 10 miles of our house. We were local investors. There are people who are international investors. So if that's, you know, that's your style, then that's definitely an option for us. But this is what makes personal finance so personal is like when you got to think through your own risk tolerance and how you prefer to to be an investor. And for us, it was like, you know, if we're living in Puerto Rico for a season or a couple of years, it's like, do you really want two properties back in Atlanta, one that needs a water heater and one that needs a roof? Like, is that the kind yeah. of problem you want to be dealing with while you're sipping pina coladas and responding <laughs> <funny emails? laughs> And for us, that was a that was a no. So yeah, we, we got out of the game, not to say that we won't ever get back in, but, you know, part of the part of part of what we want to normalize is the fact that it's all flexible. These aren't like permanent life decisions. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, but most of them aren't. They can all be, you know, exited out of at any point should you choose to. Yes, that's so important. So I want to talk about how you guys came to the conclusion that you were ready to quit your jobs. 
what happened? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so um, I quit my job in 2018, summer of 2018, mm-hmm. uh, and I just really just had enough. I mean, I had yeah. at the time a really, really awful boss. Um, which was the first, I mean, I had bad bosses, but like this one particular person was really bad. She was mm-hmm. not well respected in the organization. She ended up leaving shortly after I left. Um, the organization had just gone through like a huge, like one of several like reorganizations. Nobody knew who was going what. It was just a mess. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, our blog was doing really well. And, and I was seeing all these other you know, examples of people who had, you know, transitioned their blog from hobby to business. And I said, you know what, we could do that. Um, And then also, you know, it's like, you know, the amount of talent that I felt that I had, that I was pouring into uh, a job that just did not seem to be giving me uh, the kind of return that I wanted. I was like, well, imagine where we could be if we actually invested in ourselves. And so instead Mm -hmm. of helping to make this company or this brand or this organization, you know, stronger. Imagine if we just invested in ourselves. And while we hadn't hit our number yet, because our original plan was to just work, hit our number and then leave, it was like, you know what, if ever, you know, plenty of entrepreneurs have done a lot better with a lot less than what we had. (laughs) We have uh, momentum, we have, you know, capital, we have skills why not do it right now um and i think the second reason for me was also shortly after our son was my son was born and um i i also did not want to pass on the legacy of quote i did this so that you don't have to do it to my son right Mm. that was something that was passed on to me um this whole idea of you know how tough it's going to be out there and i was like you know what at an early age i want him to know that his father you know when he was met with some bullshit at work, did not make the decision to just suck it up. He could have yeah. said, you know what? I may not have F you money, but I do have, I don't got to deal with this shit money. Yeah. <laughs> he made the decision that was best for his wellness and for him. I wanted yeah. to be a better father. I wanted to be a better husband. And the job had stressed me out to the point where I was not able to fulfill that obligation. And so I was able to actually put uh, my money, where my values were. Um, and so that's why I left. And then Kirsten left uh, actually just a couple months ago. So just about two years later. Yeah, it was almost two years later. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the same reasons, you know, when you have one spouse that is removed from the systemic oppression that is corporate America mm-hmm. at times, mm-hmm. they, you know, he was he was evolving at a rate that I couldn't keep up with. And so he just started seeing the world very differently and our conversations weren't as productive as I wanted them to be. And as I knew they could be, I I just, I didn't agree with some of the ways that he was th- talking about growing the business and he didn't agree with how much time and energy work was sucking for me. And it was like, all right, well, what are we gonna put first? Are we gonna let this wedge be an issue in our marriage or do I need to start asking myself different questions to find the courage to leave? And that's kind of where my process started. And to Julian's point, every question that I asked myself other than, is this date that we decided on that I was going to leave my job? <laughs> like that question was, you know, the one I, that I had to, had to do away with <laughs> to actually get to the right answer. 
But Mm -hmm. I ask myself, you know, what's really at risk here? Will I be a better mother? Yes. Will I improve my marriage? Yes. Do I believe that the mission associated with Rich and Regular is one that could create change in some way? Yes. And at that point, it was a no brainer to say, well, then what the hell am I doing going into an office every day answering emails? Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was a matter of of just making the decision and having the courage to stick to it. Yeah, that is, I mean, you guys are fucking goals. I can't even handle it, honestly. Um, But I know like this is not an easy decision, right? So like that we are programmed to seek comfort as just a species and everything that you guys are doing is just so anti, let's just be comfortable, stick with this bullshit ass job for like 40 years and, and, you know, enjoy like a couple years of retirement when we're too old to move. Mm-hmm. So like what keeps you guys motivated and um, in a place of of hope versus fear? Um, I don't know. I doubt we have the same answer to this, but I, <laughs> I would say um, for me, you know, I just turned 40 a couple couple weeks ago. And oh, thank you. What, what I really love about like sitting at this really interesting age is that I have the benefit of looking back on like 20 years of adulthood Mm. um, and still being able to relate to like people who are 20 years my senior in in some way. And so for me, it's really just a matter of saying, okay, what do you believe? Like, do you believe, and I'm also a student of history, right? And so it's like, I know what change looks like. I know what change or how quick change could come about. And you really just have to be honest with yourself and say, all right, is what you're doing working? Is this belief mm-hmm. system working? Is the path that you're on producing the kind of results that you said it's producing? Are you happy? Is what you're spending money on happy? Is the rate of your money growing happy, right? Like, does this feel right? Mm-hmm. And for me, in, in some ways, the, 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 the answer was no. Like, I was not happy. I knew that I could do better because I'd seen and witnessed examples of that or I'd studied examples of what better could be. And um, and I'll also say, you know, just kind of, you know, entrenching ourselves in this community and hearing some of the amazing stories of remarkably mediocre people <laughs> who have accomplished incredible financial things. Like that to me was hella motivational. Yeah. I was like, damn, if his average ass could do this, <laughs> I know I can do this in my sleep. Fact, yeah. I can do this in my sleep, and that's not arrogance. You know what I mean? That's that's inspiration. No, it's a fact. I'm friends with those people, and I'm like, man, I love I love them. Yeah. I'm like, man, and you are like you, you know, to see somebody that's a multimillionaire that's like, man, I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm like, god damn. <laughs> I, wish, I, I wish I had those problems. That's a great problem to have. You know what I mean? And and so the, just them being honest enough to say, hey, man, it is what it is. Yeah. Like, you know, it, you know, because here's the thing, like we're so conditioned to work so hard to help make mm-hmm. all these corporations rich. And so when you take this approach to indexing, what you're investing in, in some ways, is that belief and the belief that there are still hundreds of millions of people who still believe in hard work and will do whatever it takes to make these corporations rich. And so it's up to you to say, OK, you know what? My money could probably work harder than I ever could. 24 7, 365, around the clock, around the globe. And so, why don't I change the way that I think, change the way that I invest, invest in the system um, that is supported by that? And then, if it doesn't feel good, 
you at least you now have the time to allocate your money and say, hey, you know what? I mean, I mean, we listen. We know people that made four hundred thousand last year passively, just mm-hmm. turn off their off their portfolios, right? And it's like, you know what? That's great. Um, and these are people that also give mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They don't do it for acclaim. They don't have blogs or podcasts. They just mm-hmm. cut the check and they say, you know what? I believe in that person, or I believe in that cause, or I believe in that organization. They're struggling. I'm either going to introduce them to someone that can help take them to the next level, or I'm just going to cut a check and make this problem go away. And that, for a lot of us, is the game that's being played, but we can only really play in that game if we invest in it. And so that's part of what we're trying to inspire people, and that's part of what um, inspires us to do what we're doing. Yeah, I love that. Kirsten, do you want to add anything? No, I was going to say my answer was actually very similar. The truth is what motivates me, (laughs) and the truth is... While we may feel comfortable, we're not actually comfortable. The data suggests that none of us are comfortable with a healthcare system that is failing and and disjointed. None of us are comfortable with a 20% unemployment rate and stark income inequality that leads to rioting and violence. None of us are comfortable with our food system and the fact that there are food deserts and this idea that people can't get access to healthy, fresh vegetables and that farmers are throwing away truckloads of food because they can't get it distributed. Like none of us are actually comfortable with that. We've just normalized it. Yeah. Well, the fact that the CEO makes 400 times you do or that the company had a 20 percent bump in in, in profit while you got a you know, barely oh, the two percent uh, raise, two percent in a good year, <laughs> right? Right. You know what I mean. Yeah, right. And so it's those sorts of things. It's it's and obviously it requires a lot of business and financial literacy to even connect those dots. Again, that's what inspires us, just to yeah. say, all right, you get this, but let me help you put it into context. Let me show you a community where that's not the case. Like, right. let me show you mm-hmm. these people who have picked a lifestyle where they're not grappling with those truths. They've got a different set that they have to deal with. But it's a it's it's not the one that is so remarkably biased and unfair and and racist essentially that, mm-hmm. that you, you know that you are suffocating under it. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. I love the point that you guys raised about you know when you really think about it, you are investing in the businesses that are being created in this country, and all the data shows that black and brown people are going to be the majority of this country in the not too distant future. And that also means that the majority of businesses that will be opened in the future will be owned by black and brown people. So why would we not want to start normalizing investing? Because we will literally have the potential to build those businesses with our dollars. Absolutely. It's the first generation that can fully participate economically that our parents haven't been able to, you know, with Jim Crow laws and all of the segregation and leftover bullshit from slavery, a lot of our parents weren't able to participate economically at 30 years old or even at, you know, 40 years old, 50 years old. And Mm -hmm. to to miss that and to not leapfrog a, a generation is something that we're really concerned about. There's a lot of data that suggests if we don't change anything, the median net worth of Black families is going to be zero by the year 2053, which is right around the corner. It sounds far away, but you know, it's it's 30 years and Lord willing the creek and wise, I'll still be alive. <laughs> I don't want to see, I don't want to see that for us. And so it's super important that during this, 
glitch in the matrix of pandemic slash social revolution <laughs> slash reckoning of, of work culture that we all like dive in and start claiming what's ours. Yeah. Yeah, the roaring 20s are off to a roaring <laughs> fucking start. Right. I don't even know what's waiting. I don't want to know. Right. <laughs> it's like the only thing left is a zombie apocalypse at this point. Oh, God. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm curious, you know, what do you guys want your legacy to be through this brand that you've created, Rich and Regular? Like, what do you want to accomplish? Uh, selfishly, a lot of things, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I'll say we, you know, we alluded to it earlier in this conversation, but it's, it's yeah. to normalize black wealth. Um, it mm. is to help people who uh, do not identify with, uh, or who don't identify with, with the idea of being rich or wealth building or personal finance is to wake up those people and say, you actually don't really have much of a choice because money impacts everyone. And so really, this is a conversation, like whether you like it or not, you you do have to engage in this conversation. Um, but we just want to normalize it. Like not every rich black man looks and dresses like Damon John. Not every, you know, like I, I don't even- Rich I, black I, woman is Beyonce or Oprah. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Some rich black people look just like you. That is the message mm -hmm. that I want people to understand. Um, because I think when you see that, you can relate to it and it's so much easier to take action than it is to say, um, well, rich people look like people that don't look like me. They're having conversations in communities that I'm not uh, welcome in. Um, access to these resources isn't in places that I'm familiar with. Um, therefore, I am unwilling to uh, invest in any of these ideas or even explore them. So we just want to normalize that, um, sort of tear down some of those. Actually, I shouldn't say tear down. We really want to diversify some of the images um, okay. and by really saying, hey, we're one, you know, and you, you probably passed me in the grocery store. You, <laughs> you wouldn't even know, um, which is the, which is the goal and, and, and the hope. Yeah, that that is so important. You know, I I think about people in my circle and just people in the debt-free community and the fire community. And I cannot name five married couples that are people of color that are pursuing fire. Mm. They probably exist, but mm -hmm. who the hell knows? I don't know. And it's just, it, it, I believe so much that it doesn't matter so much about the information, but who's giving you this information? Like, do they resonate with you? Because everybody can read about investing. Everybody can read, you know, the simple path to wealth or the thousands of other books written by white men about why you should invest. Yeah. But having that message come from someone who looks and sounds like you, yeah. it resonates with people in a way that no white dude talking about investing on YouTube is not, it's not going to do it for me. Yes. Correct. It's resonates <laughs> with you and does not seek power over you. Like yes. that's the insidiousness of white supremacy is that it's so ingrained in, in, in the way that people communicate that there are, there are um, messages and tones and positioning. That's like, that sounds like you want control over me. The mm. goal is to redirect you to come up with your own financial plan. Sure, I can give you a framework, a way to think about it. But if you truly want to be financially independent, you have to learn to think for yourself. You shouldn't 
you shouldn't outsource your plan to this seven step model or this you know idea of how I think you should be financially independent. You got to come up with that on your own. And that's what we seek to do. We want to have we want people to have better conversations about money so that they land on their own decisions. Like you don't need my advice. You have the answer. <laughs> I can help you guide you to, to your own intuition, but you got to learn to trust your own intuition if you want this to be a sustainable journey for you. Yeah, can I also say something like, and we've, we've, we've had this conversation personally, but like, you know, for I'm really glad that we're talking to you because one of the measures of success in my book has always been the impact uh, that it has on the Latina community, in the Latino community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, even when we go into these communities, like we can see, and we've been doing this for a couple of years now, year over year, there's more and more black faces, but not nearly as many brown faces. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's like, all right, that's what real success looks like. like the fact mm-hmm. that we have accomplished what we've accomplished, that there are enough black people in the room. Um, but what real success looks like is that, man, you know, there are like 10, 20, 30 different podcasts and bloggers yeah. and, and personal finance experts that are speaking directly to your community uh, mm-hmm. in their native tongue. Yes. Um, you know, that there's a version of money on the table where they're cooking cuisine that I don't know how to cook. And they're listening to music that I enjoy, uh, but don't know how to, you know, like dance to. Like that to me, that to me is a true measure of yeah. success. Like I can see um, where we're making progress, but I still haven't seen enough of that in the Latino community. And so um, I can name a couple, um, but I should be able to. I shouldn't be. I should be overwhelmed. You know what I mean? Like yes. I mean, there should be so many um, of them that that they are just like you know normal. And so that's true. That to me is what the true measure of success is. It's not to disregard the plight of black people Mm -hmm. or any of the things that we're going to, but I think we can reasonably see how we actually fulfill that mission within our lifetime. Mm -hmm. I can't say that with the same degree of confidence with the Latino community. And so like we need to see significantly more um, people that represent that community speaking directly to them. I absolutely agree with you. One of the first people that I found that was even talking about fire that was a woman of color was not a Latina. It was Jamila Soufran of the Journey to Launch podcast. You know, she's like the gateway drug for Latinas because who the hell is talking about this for our community? Nobody. Yeah. And it's so frustrating because I want that. I want that. Like, I want the Susie Orman who's actually like, you know, Lydia Torres or whatever the hell her name should be because. Susie Orman's a rich white woman in her 70s. Yeah. I love her, what she talks about, but that's not me. That will never be me. You know what I mean? Right. I'll be 70, but I'll never be a white rich woman in that same like in that same definition. And yeah. it's just so hard to translate to people from my community like why this matters when they don't see anybody doing it. It's like, okay, well, clearly this is not for us. And so yeah. part of this podcast, and I don't know if you can hear me like getting emotional and passionate about this is this is why we exist because the vacuum is so present. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just so grateful for you guys even like taking the time to be here and to share your story with our audience, because, you know, we have listeners from all different races, all different spectrums. And the more we can normalize that wealth and talking about money, it's not something bad. You're not going to go to hell because you want to be rich. Like, those are the things that have been ingrained in us and we need to we need to cut it out. <laughs> yeah. and, and in white spaces, that conversation sounds crazy. 
Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yes. I yes. hear it in your tone. Yes. You know what I mean? And so those are conversations that have to be had at your table. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And so for us, it's like, all right, how do we inspire them and trust that they are also having those conversations in their own home and within their own community? And we'll meet up whenever there's a venue that enables us to do that, you yeah. know, comfortably, or we'll just create one of our own. Um, yes. But yeah, I, um, I've, I've always thought that, as, you know, especially, as, you know, now that we've been in it a lot for three years now, it's like, all right, you know, I need to be seeing more. You know what I mean? The mm-hmm. fact of the matter is, I mean, between Kara and you, this is probably the second. I can, basically, I can only name like four or five people and I should mm-hmm. be able to name like 10x that. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, hopefully by this time next year, um, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to name significantly more. Amen. Putting it out into the universe. So let's see what manifests. (laughs) All right. So I want to know what advice do you have specifically for people of color who want to pursue fire, but see just like Mr. Money Mustache and all these regular schmegular white dudes doing this. How does this relate to me? Like why, how can I actually involve myself and start taking part and, you know, launching a journey into financial independence? What advice do you have? I would say treat it like a buffet, you know, (laughs) you don't have to eat everything on the buffet. Yeah, there are some things out there that, you know, that may not necessarily be your to your particular taste, but go there anyway. Listen to it anyway, because it's free game and it's bright and it's working for them and there are no barriers to entry. You can replicate a lot of those things. Obviously, there's some things that come across as tone deaf. There's some things that may not necessarily um, work for you culturally or socially, um, but this is where you come in as a self-empowered person. You can take what you want, eat what you want, and leave the rest. And so that, mm. that's really the message that I would say. There's really no, I mean, if there's a particular personality or where the personality that you're just particularly drawn to, that's great. Follow us, follow others. That's perfectly fine. But I think at the end of the day, People have to ultimately make a decision as to whether or not um, or how they are going to explore this. But the the merit of the message, the principles, the tactics, doesn't matter who you're coming, who it's coming from, they're all relevant. And so I think the advice is really to just start and to not let the uh, lack of relatability be an obstacle to you, um, you know, making progress. Yep. Yeah. That's great advice. Go ahead, Kirsten. I was just saying I agree. I love the I love the idea of the buffet because the reality is no one can be everything to everyone. And so, mm-hmm. you know, stop looking for one guru and just acknowledge that this is a community and just like your neighbors, there are people you want to have breakfast with, but maybe not a beer with. <laughs> There's people that you, you know, don't mind saying hello to, but wouldn't necessarily go on vacation with them. Like you got to just recognize that there's there's beauty in the diversity of the community and you know you get to choose how often you you engage with uh you know the the content creators yeah that, that's such an important message and by you learning these principles that people have already figured out you can become those gurus so it's mm-hmm. not just about learning the information but then it's about sharing it and spreading it because that's how we make real change once yeah. we start being the examples that we don't have, it changes things fundamentally, I believe. Yes. 
And the other thing I'll add, that's actually a really good point, because the other thing that I'll add is that 95, maybe more like 97% of people who are pursuing fire don't have a blog. And so mm. don't think that the people who write about it online are representative of the larger community. You really don't understand how big and how vast it is until you actually leave your computer screen and go to the meetups and go to the camps and the conferences and start to actually engage with people where you start to see like, oh, okay, it's not just something you have to do and blog about. Like it is, there are a lot of people who are doing this quietly on their own and you don't meet them until you go to a restaurant at two o'clock on a Tuesday and you're mm-hmm. sitting there like, oh, I wonder what these people do. And oh, I'm tired. <laughs> and yeah. That, you know. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. So before we wrap this up, I'm curious, do you guys have a specific quote or a mantra that you live by that keeps you in the zone? I do. She probably has a quote from Beyonce or something. <laughs> What's yours? I might have the same one. Uh, my, you definitely don't. Oh. Mine is um, innocence is simple, but simple, simplicity is not easy. And it, it really speaks to, um, it was actually a quote that was used to describe a, um, a jazz musician, Thelonious Monk. Um, mm-hmm. But the latter part is what I also think about when it talks about financial independence, because the principles themselves are incredibly simple, right? Like spend less, invest more, and yeah. let your money work for you. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then... Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. But that doesn't mean that it's easy to do, right? Like that's it. I could write a book and it'd be however many words that was. (laughs) And that's it. But people really, really struggle with that. And so, um, what we're trying to do is to all right, get a little bit more creative and, and make sure that we can make that message resonate with a particular audience of people so that they can be a, a bit more encouraged to actually get it done. But yeah, mm-hmm. simplicity is not easy. That's that's what I, I live by. Mm, yeah, love that. Mine is probably get rich, stay regular. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> which is just a reminder for me around being fully aware of class privilege. And while I don't have white privilege, the more money and the more income that I make, it exposes me to a different kind. And I wanna make sure that I'm always aware of it and not perpetuating it and recognizing that me having more money than someone or more wealth than someone doesn't make me better than them. It just makes me, it just means I had different choices or made different choices. So um, I like to, I like to humble myself. pretty regularly. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I think there's a lot of guilt when it comes to wealth in Mm -hmm. our communities. There is just like this, 
this idea that you don't know struggle because you have a little bit of money. And I know I've personally heard like, you know, off the side comments from like, even people like my mom, that it's just Mm -hmm. like, I'm not a parent. So, you know, when I tell her I'm going on vacation, she's like, but how do you afford to go on vacation three, four times a year? You must not have real problems. And it's like, we need to stop shaming ourselves and shaming each other for like, like succeeding because isn't that the point isn't that why you guys wanted us to do this did i touch a nerve <laughs> listen i'm telling you this is why this is why we are doing what we're doing mm. the time that we start having these conversations because again like these sorts of tensions aren't just like frustrating for you individually they have an impact on your marriage they have an yes. impact on the way that you raise your children. They have an impact on, on, on the relationship that you have with your parents. And so we've got to be able to talk about these things um, in, in a healthy way and, and to not let them get in the way of making the sort of change that, you know, to, if we're talking about it, to your point, like, this is why you sacrifice mom and dad. Right. You sacrifice to get us to this position. Now here I am. And you're shaming me for being mm. like, yeah. what is that about? Let's talk about that. And so... Um, yeah, it's a powerful, powerful um, dynamic that, that that I think certainly needs to be discussed. And, and hopefully, you know, over the next couple of years, we can help to play a role of chipping away at that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Man, well, this has been an amazing conversation. I am so grateful for you guys being here, especially on Juneteenth when, you know, we are celebrating everything that it is to be black in America. And you guys are just such inspirational, especially as a couple, like it's really, really inspirational what you guys are doing. And so for anybody who wants to find out more about you and follow your journey, where can we find you? We're at richandregular.com. And then we're on all of the social medias, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest at rich and regular. And we're also on YouTube and we just launched a new series called Money on the Table that combines our two favorite things, money and food. And you can join in and kind of eavesdrop on conversations that we have about money. I love it. And you guys do have an upcoming book coming out, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, go plug it. Plug it. Let's go. Yeah. So we don't have a release date yet, but we signed the book deal with uh, Portfolio Books, which is an imprint with penguin random house um as of today the book should be summer released to summer 2021 so during this quarantine pandemic time we are chipping away at writing chapter after chapter um but we're really really excited about that book and you know very similar to some of the conversations that we've had here is uh, using it as a vehicle to help inspire more and better conversations about money within black and brown communities I cannot wait. I hope that by then the world has returned to somewhat of a sense of normalcy in the sense that we can travel because I would love to see you guys here in Florida doing a book signing. I'm so excited for what the future holds for you. So thank you again for being here. Thanks for having us. I hope you love today's conversation with Julian and Kirsten. I think they are so inspiring and their message is so important. We really do need to care about 
increasing the levels of financial literacy in our communities because financial independence is really a way to lift ourselves and our communities out of the cycle of just getting by. We can do so much better and it just boils down to knowing what your options are. So I hope that you, you know, support them. I hope that you go and read their blog, richandregular.com. There's so much information on there. Follow their YouTube series and just really educate yourselves on the possibilities that you have to make your money become this tool to create generational wealth for you and your family. If you're loving this podcast and you're loving this episode, please make sure to subscribe. That way, anytime there's a new episode, which they do come out every Sunday, you'll be alerted as soon as they're available please make sure to review on your favorite platform. That's the way that we get more people like you who want to hear more of this content to find us, right? This is all about sharing. This is all about creating a community that we can all come together, talk about our unique struggles as people of color and really serve as mentors and educators to each other and share our experiences and hopefully continue to inspire people to lead a different, you know, choose a different way and maybe create um, a life that just really resonates and aligns with what you want to accomplish. And so until next time, guys, stay inspired, stay independent, stay motivated, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.